Just King Things is a podcast about reading the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. This episode, on the 1977 novel The Shining, has content warnings for abuse, including domestic abuse, assault, head trauma, broken limbs, racism and racial slurs, misogyny, alcoholism, homophobia, and threats of sexual violence. As an additional note, during recording, there was a problem with my microphone. We've done what we could, but the audio is still not the best quality, so apologies for that. And welcome to Just King Things, the show where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. I am Michael, and with me is Cameron. It, Michael, I'm obliterating your mind with The Shining. That's that's the sound that The Shining makes. Then, yeah, there's the you know in the. In the Kubrickiverse, which is of course different from the Kingiverse, it's got its own noise. But in this book, we are never told what it sounds like, and so I get to determine that myself. And it's all right, cool, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, well, I'm dead now. You you obliterated my mind with The Shining, uh, mm-hmm. which is a thing you can do with The Shining. Apparently, uh, The Shining has has real bad effects on you if you. Uh, use it or like it can't have real bad effects on a person if you use it too too strongly mm-hmm. there's a book called firestar mm-hmm. which we'll be reading soon that wait 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 hold on anyway but yes i'm the co-host i'm cameron and we read the shining Michael. yeah 1977's the shining uh stephen king's third novel uh and one that he calls in the introduction to the 2001 uh printing that i have a crossroads novel uh, did you have this hmm. intro in your edition? Um, no, I don't think that I. None of the copies that I have have any kind of front matter to hmm. them. Um, and I don't know if that's just the edition. So I have like the most recent Anchor Books edition mm-hmm. of of The Shining, and it's got a um, uh, it's got a dedication in the front. It's got uh a uh this is not a real hotel that i'm writing about little mm-hmm. note it's got a very long quote from edgar Allan poe uh a, a, a goya the sleep of reason breeds monsters i don't think that is a goya quote it's attributed to goya though pretty frequently it, is think, it yeah. well that's the that's the anyway okay and then uh and it'll shine when it shines folk saying <laughs> sure yeah, and and so that's the book. So no, I don't. I didn't get because I know people have been have uh, you know uh, the just King. We need to come up with a good word mm-hmm. for what uh, uh, just King things fans are. They could be the things. That, I was just thinking, like, are they the th- are they the things? That could be good. I'm gonna, let's try that out. Let's call them the things. <laughs> and if y'all don't like that, let us know. Give us some feedback. Like, comment, and subscribe to give us the feedback. But uh, I know that there's been some some talk, uh, you know, for the past couple books about like front matter 
you know, that that's kind of showed up like essays about Salem's Lot or whatever. But yeah, I don't I've not had access to any of that. So that's all to say. No, I don't, Michael. Tell me about what uh, what he says in, in the thing. Well, very, very briefly. Um, Stephen King uh, in Salem's Lot gets typed as a horror author. This is a conversation mm-hmm. that he has in, in various interviews, but also some uh, front matter two editions of that novel where he says, uh, you know, for his second book, um, his agent told him, you know, if you if you publish this vampire book, people are just going to think you're a horror author. And he went ahead and published the vampire book. Uh, the third book then is a haunted house story. And uh, so he, he's he's comfortable being a horror author at this point, presumably. Uh, but in his uh, 2001 introduction here, uh, he calls The Shining a Crossroads novel uh, because he decides to to reach a little further. So I'm going to just read here uh, a little bit from this introduction. Um, the Crossroads novel, uh, he says, is where the writer is presented with a choice, either do what you have done before or try to reach a little higher. What you realize only in retrospect is how important that choice is. Sometimes the moment comes only once. For me, the Crossroads novel was The Shining, and I did decide to reach. I can even remember the exact moment the choice came. It was when Jack Torrance, The Shining's flawed protagonist, is remembering his father, a drunken brute who abused his son mentally, physically, and emotionally, all the ways it can be done, in other words. Part of me wanted to describe the father's brutality and leave it at that. Surely, I thought, the book's readers could make the connection between Jack's relationship with his father and Jack's relationship with his own son, Danny, who is, of course, the shining psychic focal point. Another part of me wanted to go deeper, to admit Jack's love of his father in spite of, perhaps even because of, his father's unpredictable and often brutal nature. That was the part that I listened to, and it made a big difference in the novel as a whole. Instead of changing from a relatively nice guy into a two-dimensional villain driven by supernatural forces to kill his wife and son, Jack Torrance becomes a more realistic and therefore more frightening figure. So I'll leave it off at that. But um, I think it's... Yeah, what do you think? Hmm. Um, that's an interesting way to read the ending of your own novel, Stephen King. <laughs> I just I want to say that because I don't necessarily believe that that is what occurs. Although all... It's like uh, it's like if two people look at all the same clues, right? Like you know, Mr. King, I left you all the clues. <laughs> um, uh, that that yes, everything that you just said is in this book. I don't know if that makes Jack Torrance less two dimensional, though. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that that is kind of my response as well, and I think we'll get into into what that means as we actually talk about the book. But uh, to give you some history of of my time with The Shining, this was my favorite King book. Was? It might still be. I'm not sure. But um, so I've already said that I read uh, my first King book was Thinner, and I had a, a, a reaction to that. It was interesting enough. The, the reaction was loving pop. <laughs> you, develop, you developed a, a, a rational love of cherry mm-hmm. pie. Um, uh i think it's strawberry actually but anyway um, <laughs> uh, i think you're i think you're right <laughs> i just i remember these things uh mm-hmm. so anyway uh you know i i read that and i was like okay like what's what's the next stephen king book well the shining is about a haunted hotel and uh, a, a thing that you should maybe know about me is that i love horror that's maybe something that you already know about me but the thing that i love the most in horror right my my 
favorite subgenre or subtype of horror is the haunted house story. Like, I can read haunted house novels all day, every day, forever. It is just, I do not know why exactly, but it is just, you know, give me, give me a story about a house and put some ghosts in it and I am happy. And The Shining, I grew, like, so I started out loving it just because it was kind of a, a, you know, a really good haunted house story. And then as I went through undergrad and, uh, you know, just started grad school, uh, I began to appreciate how this book is kind of doing the thing that Stephen King does all the time, uh, which is taking a very basic, like, uh, quote unquote, realistic novelistic scenario. So in this case, like a traditional novelistic subject is, you know, like the breakdown of, of a uh, quote unquote, normal family. Right. Like you, you have a family, uh, a very traditional family in most respects, uh, and that family falls apart. That is that is a thing that happens in novels over and over again. What Stephen King does, of course, is he takes uh, that story and then he's like, well, what if the thing that made the family fall apart was a ghost? And the ghost is not sort of separate from uh, the, the tensions within the family. It is, in fact, a kind of uh, grotesque mirroring of those things. And I loved all of this stuff, right? In undergrad, I was very much like a formalist. I loved it. I loved finding parallels and things like that. This time, I'm reading through it, and it all feels a little obvious to me. Mm -hmm. um, and that might be just because, you know, my tastes have changed. I don't think it, it necessarily, I don't think it means that the novel is like worse, right? I think it's really a, a change in my perspective. Yeah, I mean, I have said before, and I'll say it again, top 10 American novel. <laughs> all right. Like, like no question in my mind. Uh, it, it, and it's because it's something that I said, I think, during the Carrie episode. Um, but it's that Stephen King is doing, he is taking what, uh, you know, capital M modernism in American literature, what they're doing. He's taking kind of the new novel, you know, the 1960s, 1970s new novel, and he is smashing those things into one another. And, you know, I think he does so... I don't think it's a problem, actually. He does, you know, give a lot of psychology and and kind of the the depth of these characters. I don't think they ever become three dimensional in the sense that, like you're saying, it's a little bit obvious. Um, I don't think there's ever a point in this novel where what a character does is surprising or shocking to me. Like mm -hmm. every piece of psychological and historical information that gets backfilled in over the course of the novel feels very like pat, right? Like. Like, of course, uh, you know, there's a history of abuse here. Of course, there's this kind of generational trauma that's here, uh, both for Wendy and for Jack and, of course, for Danny. Right. Like all of that feels very um, regularized <laughs> to me. Um, but, you know, it's it's the same kind of thing of taking stock characters and kind of running them into to one another. What if you ran Dracula into into like modern America? Right. What if you ran complicated psychological characters into the most basic uh ghost story plot um and and so i i agree like i think that it, it works extremely well um and uh yeah i don't i don't know i think it works better than like half of what hemingway wrote <laughs> <laughs> like you know like i i i, I don't know if it because when we're, when we're talking about like what do you get out of the end of the novel and at some total what is communicated to you I don't know. Uh, I don't know that I think the ambiguity in the situation, right? For example, which we might get with a Hemingway, I don't know if if that would improve this novel in any mm -hmm. way. 
Um, you know, kind of the brutality and violence of the last, I don't know, sixth or seventh of the novel, the last chunk, um, that's, it's very in your face and very obvious kind of like, well, here's all the themes running into one another and kind of coming to a head, but that works. I mean, the novel is a, a stone cold banger. <laughs> like it just works. Um, it, it's just really good. So, so yeah, like all that's to say, yeah, I, I think I've probably read this, I don't know, like two, three times. <laughs> Or maybe maybe even more than that, but read it a couple times as a kid. Um, read it maybe a few years ago, um, around when Doctor Sleep came out, because I reread it and then read the book for Doctor Sleep, um, and then uh, and reading it now. And I don't think my perspective on it's really changed all that much. Although when I was a kid, what was in my memory about this novel was uh, the. Um, kind of the more horror elementy kind of things that really only happen in the last piece of the book. I didn't really remember a lot of the, like, for example, the conspiracy thriller in the middle of yeah. the book. <laughs> and we'll talk about that in just a second. But there but there are big pieces of the novel that I just didn't remember, but which are really good. Like, you're, they're not necessarily horror novel-y kind of stuff, and I don't think it's what people think about when they think The Shining, <laughs> but I think that they really contribute to kind of the, the sum total of the experience. Yeah. So uh, with that kind of preamble out of the way, um, we've already set up some stuff that I think the, the listeners uh, will be able to, like, the listeners probably know something about The Shining, but they probably know more about it now if they're not familiar with it based on what we said. Uh, nevertheless, let's do a five-sentence summary. So, The Shining is the story of the Torrance family, father, Jack, mother, Wendy, and their, I think, five-year-old son, Danny. Jack is a recovering alcoholic who has recently lost his job as an English teacher at a prep school, and in a kind of a move of desperation, the family has gone to Colorado, where Jack is being taken on as the winter caretaker for an old hotel called the Overlook that is uh, snowed in for like four months of the year or something like that, snowed in throughout the entire winter. Danny, their son, is psychic, and the hotel is haunted. The ghosts there uh, feed off of this psychic energy, and they very much want to devour Danny for their own nefarious purposes. To their rescue comes uh, Dick Halloran, who is the chef of the Overlook uh, that they meet before he leaves. He is also a man with the Shining, and he comes in uh, to save the day after the ghosts have uh, driven Jack back into alcoholism, and he has uh, decided, to, like, they, they have convinced him to kill his family. And, like, that's, that's basically it, right? Like, that's the whole story. Um, of course, obviously, it's decompressed. Uh, but those are those are the big broad movements uh, in 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 I think kind of like the tradition of these early novels, right? You can actually describe the entirety of what happens in in these in these King books very very simply. Yeah, I think what's interesting about that is that these these kind of early novels is one uh, you know very high concept, right? Haunted house with psychic kid, mm -hmm. you know, house haunted house drives man crazy, like that kind of thing. I guess the, the cool part about it, right, is that between those pillars, there's a lot of play. There's, like, a lot of stuff that can happen. So, like like we said before, there's a whole hundred pages of this book that are about, like, researching a novel about the hotel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, like, doing that kind of stuff. And it doesn't feel like it bogs the novel down. 
Um, it's it's really kind of a you know we were talking about about before the when we were off mic. My copy of the book is almost uh, let me see here almost seven hundred pages long, and the things that we just described take up maybe two hundred of those pages. The rest of it's just kind of slow burn. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, as far as slow burns go, it's pretty good. I, w- I will also say just one other thing is that something that's going to become um, less frequent in Stephen King's novels as we move forward. Um, is that, or maybe to put it a different way, all of the character motivations in this book are very clear. Yes, extreme. We know we know what people want in a general sense, right? Jack wants to write a play and to take care of the Overlook. Uh, Danny wants to please his parents and not be killed by the <laughs> Overlook. Wendy wants to take care of her child and to have complicated feelings toward Jack. And also not be killed not, by the Overlook. And also not be called by the Overlook. Dick Halloran wants to save these people, right? Like, like motivations, very, very clear. The Overlook wants to kill these yeah. people. It also has some motivations, mm-hmm. right? Um, as we move forward in Stephen King's oeuvre, I would say that that becomes one of the weaker links in his writing. Um, sometimes it is very unclear why people are doing things. Mm-hmm. In this novel, that is not a problem. It, it is. It is, in fact, a good novel i think to teach in an intro to lit class because uh because the 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 formal elements of it snap together so cleanly and are always very clearly communicated Mm, all right well what what do you want to talk about it's it's easy i think it is easy for us to get into a a nitty play-by-play nitty gritty Mm -hmm. play-by-play uh on this book but um maybe maybe we can you want to start in the prehistory of the thing what do you make of Jack as a character. So very famously, this movie gets adapted by Stanley Kubrick. Um, and we I don't think we can really talk about this book without also talking about the way that it enters the popular imagination through Kubrick's film, uh, where mm-hmm. Jack is played by Jack Nicholson. Stephen King also quite famously hated this casting decision. The reason being uh, because Jack Nicholson at this point was known for playing um Oh, goodness, I can't remember the character's name, but uh, uh, the guy from uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I think his name is like Murphy mm-hmm. Randall or Randall Murphy or something. It, it could be either. There's, there's a kind of like cadence uh-huh. to that where it could be either. <laughs> Wouldn't matter. One way or the other. Anyway, um, King, King did not like this casting decision because he believed that because Nicholson was known for playing a man who was like, uh, quote unquote, crazy or insane, that it was... Uh, 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 it was tipping the hand to the audience too early that eventually Jack, who is a recovering alcoholic, and we find out also that he has, like, he has a temper, right? Um, eventually we find out he's abused a student. Like, not ab- abused is not exactly the right word. He has assaulted a student, right? He, like, beat him in a parking lot. Yeah, he he beat severely yeah. a, a teenager. Yeah. And he also, uh, when he was, and he was sober at that point, we also learn that at one point uh, when he was drunk, he snapped Danny's arm when Danny was a toddler. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of this stuff, we, we don't necessarily know at the beginning. Uh, it is stuff we learn over the course of the novel. But King ob- objects to Jack Nicholson because he's like, oh, well, like, clearly the audience knows he's going to go crazy because it's Jack Nicholson playing him. However, we learn within, like, the first few chapters of this novel that the like the it is clear that what is probably going to happen or like what is kind of the, the looming threat is that Jack is going to go crazy and kill his family. Like Danny has a psychic vision of that in like his first chapter. 
Mm -hmm. So there's not exactly like something being held back by Stephen King here either. And that to a degree affects, I think, our ability to relate to him because uh, in the way that Salem's Lot, for instance, would take a character who was from a certain type of a story and then uh, have that character be like suddenly and just irrevocably diverted into into vampirism. That effect doesn't work here because we always know that something is up with the Overlook from the beginning. And we always know, or we we know that the threat is that Jack is going to fall to the Overlook in some way. Um, it's 1977 when this novel comes out. It might have read differently then, but Jack Reads is kind of a big asshole in, in his introduction. Do you agree? Yeah, that's that's kind of what I wonder about, right? And and especially at the beginning when you're talking about kind of the you know, the non-2Dification, right, of of Jack is that dude is a huge giant asshole. He's just like a big jerk, right? Like he is he's extremely mean to his wife. <laughs> like like even in his like pre-quote-unquote abusive uh I mean, the quote-unquote was pre there, not abusive. He is an abusive person. But, you know, in in the points of the novel before he is, like, kind of moving into this violent, abusive mode, he, he's belittling her constantly. He's yelling at his kid. He's yelling at his wife. He has this kind of Papa Knows Best attitude that gets, you know, kind of reiterated later. And I get a sense that Stephen King thinks that he's playing a little bit of, like, a, like a shell game here, like... Oh, it appears in certain situations, which is going to, you know, signal to us that it's going to come out seriously later. But you read that in 2020 and like the the uh, maybe there's a gradation. This is the most charitable read possible. Uh, In 1977, there appears to be a finer grade of understanding what it means to. Uh, be, you know, abusive or violent toward your family as a white American male. Mm -hmm. In 2020, that gradation does not exist. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, like, the way that he talks to Wendy is a pretty clear signifier that of what comes later of, of, you know, violence and much more explicit um, uh, verbal abuse and stuff like that, right? Like, yeah, he's just he's just a huge jackass. Um, and the way that he is positioned, it's very hard for me to have any kind of sympathy for <laughs> for him. I mean, I do at the end, actually, uh, and, and I think that's important. Uh, but but in the sense of like all of the setup, right? So uh, it used to be an alcoholic or is an alcoholic is in recovery. I got a lot of sympathy for that in a general sense, but then you start pairing away the alcoholism and all the other behaviors are still part and parcel of his character. Um, so it's not as if like one generates the other, or if he's a different kind of person, right. (laughs) When he's under the influence of alcohol, he, his, his mode of like thinking he's better than everyone else because he has like an advanced degree. Uh, his, his constant uh, near the beginning of the novel, right. Where they're talking about Grady, oh, yeah. uh, the previous caretaker and how he like didn't finish high school. And so obviously Jack is going to be a better caretaker because he, he and his wife, Wendy read books Ooh. like, fuck you, dude. <laughs> like this dude just sucks. Yeah. Like, so, I mean, just the first, the first line of the novel is Jack Torrance thought officious little prick. Mm hmm. Like that is that is the the novel begins. We jump into Jack's head, and the first thing he is doing is thinking about how much he fucking hates this other guy. 
And it's yeah. sort of, I think, very um, like the other guy is uh, Stuart Ullman, who is the manager of the Overlook uh, during its operating season. He's the guy who's going to end up um, hiring Jack, uh, not because he wants to, but because he's being pressed by a board member who Jack is buddy buddy with. Uh, but anyway, Jack dislikes Ullman. Uh, because Ullman is very, he, he's officious, right? As, as Jack calls him, he's very fastidious. He cares a lot about the Overlook. And he is, uh, queer-coded is not exactly the right word, but he is he has, like, mannerism, like, he, he may be, right? Like, it's it's unclear exactly how Stephen King is intending us to, to take Ullman himself. I, I think the, the coding is effete. Yes. Or effete. I don't know how you say it. Yes. But, right, the, like, there's there's some sort of, like, upper bourgeois um uh like sexuality beyond or or uh, approach to the world beyond what the ordinary man would do right you know there's something going on there and that shows up later too with um uh derwent mm -hmm. i think i think I think these characters are meant to be read anyway sorry to interrupt <laughs> but go ahead oh oh i was just saying like uh so like this this opening scene with jack right one of the what our first scene with him is not just him like hating this guy, right? But there is obviously a kind of different approaches to masculinity are being pitched against each other here, right? Jack is, we'll, mm -hmm. we'll learn that, so he's going to be a caretaker. As you said, he he takes pride in himself for having a degree, and he looks down on Grady, who was the caretaker who uh, killed his wife and two, two daughters um, in a previous season. Uh, and Jack says that that happened because, you know, cabin fever, but he and his wife read, mm -hmm. so they're going to be able to keep themselves entertained. And that's why he's not going to murder his family. So Jack is from kind of a working class background. We learn this later as well. Um, and he's kind of worked his way up to becoming an English teacher and he wants to be a writer. He's sold some short stories. He wants, he wants to write this very literary play called like the little school or something. Yeah. It just sounds awful. It sounds like the worst play. I've it ever sounds, heard. it sounds really stupid. And also it's basically a, uh, apt pupil it, it is. Right, right like which is which is a Stephen King novella we're going to talk about later it gets published in different seasons uh, in like 83 I think um uh so Stephen King reuses some of the seeds of this like play within the novel for a later story he tells but anyway right like we we have uh Jack, who used to be a teacher, who had this aspiration of being the great American novelist, he's been thrown low because of his own uh, temper and um, his alcoholism, and he's forced into kind of this, this job that has previously been offered to like high school dropouts and single men with no attachments. And he has been brought face-to-face mm -hmm. -face with this feminized, uh, effete man who he has doubt... He, he, like, uh, there's also... The next person he meets is uh, the the maintenance man of the Overlook, Watson, who's very mm -hmm. like rough and tumble working class. His his dialogue is written in kind of uh, you know that that uh, like working class uh, idiolect. He says family instead of family and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Very Stephen King. We're going to see that show up a billion yeah. times. So we have Jack, who is positioned between uh, like Ullman, the manager, who is. Uh, less masculine and then we have sort of the overly masculine watson who's like blowing his nose and like looking at the snot in his handkerchief and that sort of thing and he works in the basement and jack is positioned between them as someone who was at one point upwardly mobile but now all of these uh sort of aspirations have been thwarted by himself uh and his response is to just kind of resent everyone yeah there, there's a sense that that you get across 
you know, the whole novel that that Jack believes that he is being unfairly treated by the world. Um, and and, you know, the kind of broader context that we get around that is that Jack is just just doesn't do the work mm-hmm. in a general sense. Right. Like he doesn't complete the, the, the play. He barely is working on it. Um, he is constantly thinking about how other people are trying to get one over on him or how other people have unfairly treated him and never considering that that his actions and the way that he deals with other people might have something to do mm-hmm. with it. Um, and right, like, I think it's really crucial. I, I think that this novel gets tied up in, in discussions of alcoholism all the time, and I think that's obviously very, very complicated, but it's important to note, right, that him being an alcoholic, actually, for a very long time and, and drinking on the job, in fact of teaching high school students that that's not what got him fired. What got him fired is being stone sober and going and catching a, 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 a kid um, who is slashing his tires. He, he catches him doing it and he beats him so badly that he, uh, you know, it, it's told in, I think narrated in a really kind of brilliant, brilliant way where you only get pieces of it, but he is like slamming the kid's head up against his car. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's like smashing this kid's, head into the thing and before he does it he says of course you're going to take your medicine which is this kind of phrase that that his own abusive father said to him so obviously all these things are tied up in one another and i think we could have a really robust conversation about you know uh is that mode of engaging with the world of violence and and trauma and and abuse is that something that that he can be blamed for and you know i i don't know i don't think it's i certainly don't think it's a choice to do that (laughs) to like you know deal with the world via your trauma but right, like the the thing that gets him fired is ultimately an action that he does, uh, you know, and it is an overreaction. But he never sees it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, he only sees it as he reacted, and he was treated unfairly in that reaction. Mm-hmm. And that that kind of position towards something is what you know traces Jack's position through the novel. And ultimately, at the end of the novel, when he is trying to kill his wife and son. That's the same scenario or set of scenarios or same framing of the scenario that's going through his head the whole mm-hmm. time is I can't believe they're doing this to me. I have to do it back to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's tragic in a lot of ways, I think, in, in like, you know, capital T tragedy in that there seems to be a progression of events that no one can get out of, mm-hmm. you know, like like it's fate. Mm-hmm. That that's that's very intentional uh, because King has said that he he stru- he wanted to structure this as a tragedy, which is why there are five parts mm. to the book to mirror the five acts oh, of, wow. of um, a tragic play. Yeah, so so it absolutely works in that way, right? But but there's never any kind of reconciliation of Jack and the character that maybe uh, he can recognize this pattern and do something about it. And obviously, this is also a very 2020 kind of like frame of thinking about generational trauma and abuse, mm-hmm. right? You got to think about what you've inherited and how you can you, how you need it to deal with it. Um, but uh, but that but I don't think that makes him a very sympathetic character either, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, or, or, you know, it doesn't change my position on, you know, he's kind of two dimensional and kind of is just a shit guy um, on some level because he has no interest maybe in being reflective. Maybe that's my problem. Maybe that's what I'm getting at is that Jack has zero interest in trying to think about where he came from and why he acts the way he does to other people and to his own family. Mm-hmm. Um, he never gets out of that kind of of uh, the mindset that he has inherited. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's also worth pointing out, right, that all of these things that we're describing, this 
this, these are things the Overlook uses against him, right? These are things that I think the novel is mm-hmm. conscious of. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, the Overlook, when it starts to get to work on the family, because it's, if it, this is how, you know, haunted house novels work, is that people are in the haunted house, and the haunted house starts setting up little situations or like sending them little thoughts and their, you know, perspective on the world is, is, is slowly um, corrupted and compromised by, you know, the framing of whatever evil dwelling they're in. So the Overlook uses all of this stuff against Jack. So it's clear that like the Stephen King and the novel itself is not like, these are all fine characteristics of him because, because these habits are with Jack to the end, the novel never quite steps outside of them uh, in a way to suggest that they are like, uh, things that might have gone otherwise, as you're saying, right? That kind of uh, the, the tragic inevitability of it. Yeah, I think that that is a great way of putting it. And I think that's what I'm trying to get to or, or what I'm trying to say is that that I think what would, would make Jack a better character, quote unquote, better, right? Or more interesting or more three-dimensional or maybe even more, more sympathetic or tragic uh, would be him recognizing the situation that he is in and knowing he can't get out of it. Mm -hmm. And he never does that. It's just flatly presented as like him and the kind of little universe that he is in. And so it never gets beyond for me. It never gets beyond a stock character. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's an interesting stock character, but, but he's kind of a, you know, just, just a a shooty guy. Anyway, what about Hubie Marston? Uh, Hubie Marston is a character from Salem's lot. But I know this is weird, right? And we talked about this in the Salem's Lot episode is that Salem's Lot basically gives you the setup for The Shining. Uh, mm-hmm. If you if you haven't listened to the Salem's Lot episode or to refresh your memory, Hubie Marston is this uh, gangster in that novel who has a lot of like because he's a gangster, has a lot of unsavory connections, might have done some murders, uh, but also uh, moves to the small town of Jerusalem's lot, uh, builds a house, moves into it with his wife, and then may or may not do some Satanism. Actually, not may or may not. He does. He does some <laughs> Satanism. Um, <laughs> they absolutely do Satanism. <laughs> uh, but the the sort of end result is that his house, uh, the Marston house, becomes like the local haunted house, and it's described as kind of a... Uh, uh, a reservoir or a, a reservoir of like malignant psychic energy. Right. And the, the thing that um, is quoted in that novel uh, that has bearing here is Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, one of the, the great haunted house uh, novels. Um, the famous opening lines for that, uh, you know, no live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then whatever walked in Hill House walked alone. Mm hmm. And that gets quoted again here in, in like a parenthetical. Yeah, segment. I think it's uh, it's Jack or Wendy one um, has read that novel and they think of like because the, the one of the fundamental things uh, about Jackson's approach to the haunted house story is that there's not like one thing that explains why the house is haunted. Right. The, the thing that is sort of mm-hmm. asserted in that novel is that Hill House was, quote, born bad. There was just something wrong with it mm-hmm. from the day that they broke ground. And the the sort of suggestion by the end is that in some ways, right, Hill House haunts itself. Like there are no individual ghosts. Hill House itself is just evil. So mm-hmm. King picks this up and, and runs with it uh, by saying, you know, well, what if this Hubie Marston character, what if he made, you know, he built his bad house, right? Uh, and it was a kind of psychic uh, battery where various bad things might might sort of coalesce. And then he uh, pulls that forward here into The Shining by saying, well, what if it wasn't just a house? What if it was a hotel? 
And uh, this hotel was surprise at one point and actually for a long time involved with a seedy gangster type guy who is basically uh, who, who had a lot of, uh, you know, more legitimate business connections. What if Hubie Marston, right, that character, what if he was Howard Hughes? So uh, a, a business magnet after uh, sort of during and after uh, the Second World War. And what if all of his kind of like peculiarities and his his indiscretions um, were fed into this hotel? Uh, he did not build it. This is this is crucial. Also, the, the hotel was built even earlier. But the character who is the Hubie Marston analog, this guy named Horace Derwent, he he plays a large part in kind of uh, the Overlook becoming a place where where the the moneyed elite of the interwar and post-war periods uh, spent their time because the Overlook has all of these. It's 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 that old type like Gatsby style high society, right? Like that's the history of this hotel. Yeah, th- there's something I love Horace Derwent. Mm-hmm. Like like I mean not. Literally, but but the concept of Horace Derwent is great to me. And what I really like about him too is that he's he's a little. You put this in the notes. He's a little Howard Hughesy, right? And that you know a lot of money inventor. But what I associate him with is Jack Parsons. Oh, right. So it, it very similar kind of vibe, right? So Jack Parsons is an American historical figure who was a rocket scientist. Uh, but was also really involved in magic <laughs> and and died under mysterious circumstances. And, um, you know, so lots of people, he, uh, uh, who's the uh, uh, British mu- uh, magician he hung out with? Crowley? Yeah, Crowley. Um, so so deeply involved in, in like that kind of scene, but also, you know, rockets. <laughs> and uh but but so yeah, so so to me, Derwin is kind of a melding of of all of those kind of people. Right. And. And, uh, you know, we find out over the course of the novel that that Derwent loses control of the hotel, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, theoretically, and then regains it through like shadow corporations over the years. And at one point, Jack is having a conversation with uh, his friend Al Shockley, right, who got him this job. And Al Shockley's on the board of the hotel at this point. And he basically says, like, do you do you still work with Horace Derwent? Right. Like, do you still work with the Derwent Corporation? And so for me, there's like this whole extra like push in this novel of like there, there's not only Horace Derwent in like his like nightmare um, hotel that he has made that has all the stuff that, that we're going to talk about as far as ghosts and things like that, that. That's almost inherently evil, as you're saying, Michael, from from groundbreaking forward, but also that there's like a whole shadow conspiracy set of corporations in America and who knows how many people are associated with it that ultimately are like feeding, you know, the, the Overlook Hotel that, that we don't know where Derwent went and we don't know where his influence went and we don't know what it does. And that like, that, that's just one little piece. But I also think that that's like such a, a cool Kingian kind of thing of like giving us little connections to something else and not really making them all that clear. And uh, the reason I'm bringing that up is that once we get the Dark Tower universe, all those weird little connections like that start turning into Dark Tower mm-hmm. connections. And so I think that The Shining, you know, it's very similar, actually, to what you were just saying about Hubie Marston, right? That we know he did Satanism because of, like, one paragraph, mm-hmm. right, of him writing to Barlow, presumably, um, back in the day, like 100 years before the novel began. And if that book had been written in, you know, 1988 he would have been writing to someone who connects to the Dark Tower universe mm-hmm. in some way. 
Um, I think something similar, if The Shining had been written even 10 years later, something similar would have happened here, where uh, the Derwent Corporation would have been, you know, tied into uh, uh, Positronics, whatever it's called. Yeah, yeah, North Central Positronics, or like the Sombra Corporation. Exactly, right? So so that's that's all to say, right? There's something that really cool in these early King novels that I think get folded into his like king verse mm-hmm. that we've been talking about in in a way that's actually i think rereading these novels in this framework is a little bit disappointing to me um because i actually think that the dark tower and you know uh 12 year old me would would be appalled that i'm saying this but i think the dark tower universe might actually mess up stephen king a little bit mm-hmm. uh it might actually make what's cool about his writing not as good sometimes um but that's a digression. That's for later. Back to you, Michael. Sorry. Sorry for a long digression. Oh, no, I think that I think that's good because what, what you're getting at, I think, is a question that you can come up with as you're reading this book is like, does Derwent know the hotel is haunted? Is yeah. he like because he he keeps like reacquiring it through through shell corporations and stuff. And it's like, does he have some sort of plan? Right. Is he working on something or was he working on something? Did he have some sort of goal with this place? Uh, and that is, you know, existentially terrifying, right? That this guy finds out that there's a haunted hotel and he spends the rest of his life kind of like drawing people into it. Yeah. And putting situations into it that might help the hotel, right? Because there's like the mob murder, right? And that 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 happens because Derwin mm-hmm. sets it up. So this is interesting because there was a prologue to this novel called Before the Play, which was, hmm. you know, uh, obviously uh, tying into King structuring this like a play, a five-act tragedy, but also before the play that, that Jack is writing. Before the play uh, was cut from the novel. Um, and I think for good reason, uh, because it's there like the, the specific parts of it are good. I went back and reread it uh, for this. Um, the specific parts of it are good. Uh, there are interest. There are interesting stories there, but I don't think it helps the novel generally, because what the prologue is, it's basically like five short stories about the history of the Overlook Hotel. And the first one we get is uh, from the perspective of I think his name is Big Tom Watson or something like that who is the great, great grandfather of the person of the the caretaker, like the maintenance man of the overlook in the present day, right? The guy who's very working class. Mm. Uh, the, the story we learn is from, from the novel itself is that this guy got super rich, right? He was like a, a Western like land baron during that time. He got super rich. He built the overlook hotel. It was supposed to be his crown jewel. And uh, instead he like, he lost his fortune, right? It ruined him. The first story we get in this prologue is from his perspective when he has become the maintenance man himself. Those are the terms when he went bankrupt. Uh, those are the terms he uh, instituted with the new owner is that he would sell the hotel as long as he could be the like as long as his family had some sort of claim to the maintenance position. Hmm. And the thing that he remembers is like his wife died while he was making the hotel. Right. And she she uh, like got suddenly very sick and, and died. And you get the sense that like the overlook got to work on him. Right. Like the the second he wanted to start building this hotel, it got to work on him. And she says to him something like, you know, you've set it up in the tabernacle of your heart. So we get this Mm -hmm. sense from the beginning that there is something to the overlook that pulls people in that makes them like give up everything for it uh, against their own best interests. And it's very often men. So we get that historical context. We also get um, a little story about like a, a wealthy couple in I think the 1920s who go there for their honeymoon and the wife is very mean and has she has a bad experience. Uh, we also get the backstory of the dog man who will 
probably talk about, but I don't like that we get the backstory of him because the dog man is so much fucking scarier when you have no idea what is going on with him. Yeah, where he just shows up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's deeply. I was, so I finished this book last night, and I was like in bed, and I was like, "Ooh, fuck, this is scary." <laughs> like when I first read this novel, as you know, like eleven or twelve years old or whatever, like the dog man is the thing that terrified me because yeah, it's it's like it, it's a perfectly Keenian kind of thing. He can do this so well, where he'll just like present an image that is like almost like. It is so absurd that it is almost panic-inducing of of this man in a dog costume, like, running around on all fours, like, yelling at a kid. Yeah. Like, nightmarish, right? In, in like, a real, like, primal sense of that word. Uh, But then the other, uh, we get a, like, very short story uh, about Jack as a child. Like, so the, the, Hmm. the, the, the prologue moves away from the overlook. It goes to when Jack is a child, and it talks about, uh, the time that his father came home drunk and broke his arm. Gotcha. And then the final sort of like scene is the the gangland murder. And it's very sort of strongly implied that, again, Derwent is kind of like organizing things at the hotel in order to maybe like make the hotel more powerful. And so the suggestion becomes that like Derwent is, is like the original builder, right? Derwent is another person who has like been hooked into the hotel in, in a very key way. And it is it is working through him as well as on him. Yeah. I mean, I guess I wonder if that is why, you know, kind of moving to to another key character we haven't really talked about or we only talked about briefly. I wonder if that's why Dick Halloran works there. Uh, explain that. What do you mean? So so Dick Halloran is the, is the cook, right? Um, and I, I'll say more about him. But I wonder if I, I wonder if the hotel sets up scenarios in which people who have a predilection to being controlled make their way there, mm-hmm. right? Um, because and we know at the very end of the novel, a little bit of spoilers. I don't. I don't. There's really no spoilers uh, in this in the <laughs> show. Um, but but the very end of the novel, right? When when everything is saved, quote unquote. The hotel almost gets its hooks into Halloran. Yes. At the very end of the novel. And so I wonder if there's a kind of, you know, I, the, the there are questions in this novel for me about who has The Shining, or is there some additional thing that is not The Shine that allows you, that, that but that works in a similar <laughs> way? And the reason I say that is because when Dick Halloran... Uh, uh, is talking to Jack at the beginning of the novel or toward the beginning of the novel. He says that the, that Wendy might have a little bit mm-hmm. of the shine and that Jack has something, but he's hiding it. And he has something that's buried down deep that he can't quite read. And I don't know if that is meant to be his trauma. I don't know if that's meant to be like, you know, just some like, you know, kind of lazy way of saying that like, oh, he has some latent potential for insanity that, the, you know, the hotel is going to take take advantage of. Or if it means that there is something also kind of fundamental in a person like The Shining, but that is perhaps more um, able to be reckoned with with darkness or brought into the fold of darkness. Um, and, and because Danny says similar things about his father, uh, over the course of the novel too. So I, you know, I, I wonder if there's a kind of, you know, if it's a battery, I wonder if there's kind of a drawing effect that happens. Mm -hmm. Um, and this might be, my mind might be polluted a little bit about from having read Dr. Sleep, um, you know, written 30, 40 years later. Where in Dr. Sleep, there's this kind of claim that there are, as you're saying, Michael, there are kind of places of power 
in the United mm-hmm. States and that uh, they inherently draw people toward mm-hmm. them and they draw trauma and violence toward them. And the Overlook is one of those places. So I might be, you know, um, letting later King kind of pollute me here, but there's kind of a later feeling about it. But but maybe we can use that as a, as a way of talking about Dick Halloran, who is, as far as I know, uh, the first instance in a Stephen King novel of what we would call a magical black person. Mm-hmm. So Stephen King is somewhat infamous for this, I would say. Yes. I think people who know things about Stephen King tend to know that he he this is this is unfortunately right another one of his stock characters. Yeah, so I mean we're going to see a few of them coming up very soon. We're going to see um Abigail in in mm-hmm. the stand. Um we're going to see um I'm trying to think of other Oh, uh well no, it's just um anyway, Abigail is the one. <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be the major one coming up up shortly. But but yeah, Stephen King has a way of writing um he to his credit. Let's let's begin with a positive. To his credit, Stephen King attempts to uh be inclusive in in the things in the characters that he is putting in mm-hmm. novels. Stephen King is not a black man. Mm-hmm. One does not get the sense reading Stephen King's novels that he knows very many black people. Um uh, and, and so what you end up, I, I'm dancing around the point, uh, what you end up getting in Stephen King novels is you get black characters who are uh, caricatures, just straight up caricatures. Um, and often they have, for whatever reason, psychic powers mm-hmm. or or magical powers or fantasy powers. And so you end up getting this kind of like wizened, powerful, uh, charitable black person that like helps kids along the way you know i, I think the, i'm thinking of a character in the talisman who, mm-hmm. who's kind of I, I don't remember his name but who's like a big character for that of course dick haller in here uh mother abigail in the stand um they are kind of like i mean they're they're uh, mother abigail is not that different from like a mammy character mm-hmm. um and, you know if we're, if we're thinking about you know gone with the wind or something like that and so you, you get sections of his books that are just kind of racist caricatures. I mean, there, there's not a way of saying anything other than that. And they are invested with a lot of like plot power, mm-hmm. but it's always plot power in relationship to helping white characters succeed. So there's still a kind of replication of structural racism in these things. Um, they tend to talk in dialect. They, te- they tend to have conversations with other black people that don't feel like any real conversation that any human being has ever had, let alone a, a, a racially or ethnically correct conversation. Um, and uh, he tends to love to put them in racist situations. Uh-huh. And so we have to, just like in this novel, um, get a white man writing about a black character who is experiencing racism and it's just like pages of the N-word and things like that. So it, it creates this kind of constellation in a general sense of just bad vibes, <laughs> I would say. Just racist vibes um, that, that you know, are they're bad. You know, there's no other way of saying it. They're bad. Um, all of that said, I think maybe Dick Calloran is probably one of the best attempts at this that Stephen King has made. Um, even though... Uh, even though, you know, not the best character. Yeah, I, I sort of agree, right? And I think part of one of the reasons I cooled on this book as much as I did this time is the 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 stuff about Halloran, which I, you know, I didn't notice the first time I read it because I was like a preteen uh, and I had no sort of concept for any of this. I was a little white boy. Um, 
But, uh, you know, I, I went to college, I learned a bunch of stuff, I've got a, you know, PhD now, and reading Halloran this time, it was almost, like, painful in seeing, like, how, like, how close Stephen King was to actually writing just a character. Mm-hmm. And, and to be clear, like, I think this is coming from a, a quote unquote good place, right? Stephen King is not doing this. Uh, he, this is, this is what is wrong with this type of, of, uh, uh, characterization and the way, this way of building your plot is that Stephen King understands that it is hard to be a black person in, in the world and in America, right? He, he knows that you get the sense that sort of the logic behind writing a character like Halloran is to make up for it by giving him psychic powers. Yeah, there's this kind of, I, I think the way that you're saying it is exactly right, right? There's this like make up kind of thing about it of like um, uh, the the truly cool or interesting character, he's going to be black. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there, there's this kind of like, uh, it's it's patronizing. Yes. I mean, that that that's ultimately the, the end of it, right? It's, it's a kind of very patronizing way of thinking about characters mm-hmm. in the novel. But it also, I think, and this is not, this is not excusing it, right? It also plays into the thematics of the novel, which uh, to think back to the Overlook, uh, as I said, is 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 associated with kind of um, old money, right? Like the Jet Set, uh, the Gatsby kind of stuff, and then specifically when Derwent takes it over after World War II, uh, and Jack thinks this when he is so. There's during the kind of middle point of the novel when the hotel starts drawing Jack in. Uh, he, it, there's, there's like a whole bunch of old papers and stuff stored in the Overlook's basement. And he has to go down there to, to, um, release pressure from the boiler because it's an old boiler and, uh, it needs that to, it, that needs to happen or else the boiler will explode. So Jack goes down mm-hmm. into the basement frequently as part of his job as the caretaker. And he starts digging through all of these papers and he finds a bunch of stuff that comes from the time when, uh, Horace Derwent took over the hotel. And he had this big uh, sort of it was in like late August, like literally like right after World War Two ends. He has this big celebratory party sort of celebrating himself and his wealth. But Jack reads it as a celebration of America and America coming into its own understanding as of itself as like a world power and like the future belongs to America. And we we are going to celebrate ourselves and and our wealth and our abilities and so on and so forth. And then, of course, we find out that um, uh, or rather not really find out, but it's very strongly implied that the uh, party like just like became an orgy. Right. Like a straight up just like orgy with uh, Derwent and all of his like wealthy uh, friends. Uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with like group sex or having orgies or whatever. Right. This is this is kind of the moral universe that King plays in where uh, this is we are we are to understand this as like a sign of like the, the, the depravity or sort of like the moral and ethical hollowness of this this new type of Americanism. Yeah, it's, it, it is not. uh it's not just like an orgy; it's like a bacchanalia. Yes, right. It it is reveling in the the excess of the thing, and right. I mean, it's it's the production of psychic energy. I think here too. I think I think the reason that because you know he discovers this that this happened, and and toward the end of the novel, as things are really kind of coming to a head and things are happening, what keeps occurring is that the party keeps being summoned up. Mm-hmm. You know that it is the face of of the overlook is this party. Um, and the reason for that, I think, is that that it is like 
it was designed, you know, this is the kind of conspiratorial Derwent mindset, right? It was designed to create a splash of psychic, you know, information. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it kind of gets built up into the dog man too, right? With the dog man, uh, when he's yelling at Danny, he is sexually frustrated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's trying to, to sleep with Derwent and Derwent won't have sex with him or he can't find Derwent basically, mm-hmm. right? So there's this kind of, of longing and desire and and want that's associated with this big psychic event, um, but but it's never fulfilled, right? It is ultimately kind of kind of uh, run aground on the rocks of reality, and like that is built into the psychic structure here. So like all of the 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 kind of you know uh, I'm, I'm going to be me here, but the metaphysics of the <laughs> overlook right are based on these big moments of like affective and and psychic energy, you know, a charge. You you know, we keep talking about a battery, but that really is what it is, right? It's charging up what the overlook has in its capacity for action, right? Um, and yeah. like the the dog man is a great example. Uh, you're talking about sort of like that frustrated desire because like that's what the overlook ends up doing to Jack is it starts saying to him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in direct or like indirect ways, uh, like if you wrote a novel about this, right, because he's digging through all of these papers, if you wrote a novel about this, it could really be a big hit. If you just kept reading all of this stuff, mm-hmm. if you just if you just follow me a little bit further, uh, some good stuff could happen, right? This could really make your career. And so it, it ends up replicating uh and in kind of an individual way, this larger structure that you could say is like a critique of of, of America in general and post-war America, this idea of, oh, look at all of our power, look at all of our wealth, but who really has that? And who is structuring access to it, right? The Overlook is is this like nexus of, I mean, it's what Lauren uh, Berlant calls um, cruel optimism. Mm-hmm. It's like harmful attachments. Like, yeah, I could I like the American dream, right? I could have a better life for myself if I just worked harder. And at the same time, this friggin haunted hotel is is cutting out my legs from underneath me at every turn. And then, of course, is a, you know, the reason Halloran like shows up here in his way, right? And this is also a problem of making like the one black character in the book really like representative of all black people. But he is the person who looks at the hotel and is like, this is bullshit, right? This is a thing that does not like, this place does not like us. (laughs) Yeah. And so when the, uh, you know, at the beginning of the novel, Halloran's showing them around, he has kind of a psychic conversation with Danny and that, and if you're confused about what's happening in the novel by that point or at that point, he lays it all out for you, right? He's like, Danny, Danny, He's got psychic abilities. Uh, this hotel is going to wait till these people cannot leave and it's going to do something bad for them. Danny, if you, I'm going to be in Florida, but if you need me, call for me and I will be there. Um, and what we get, you know, repeatedly over the course of the novel with Halloran is he's down in Florida. He's just kind of living his life and, you know, he's got friends down there. Um, and, and he's just kind of doing, he's got his car that he actually really likes. You know, he doesn't want to bring it to Colorado, but as he drives away, um, when he leaves the family there, right? When he leaves the Torrances there, he drives away and he thinks I'm never coming back here again. You know, I, this is a bad place uh, because he's seen things in the hotel. He's been to room 217, which has kind of a, 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 you know, a ghostly woman in it. The woman who famously shows up, you know, I think she's kind of the central, one of the central uh, images from the, the Kubrick film. And he says, you know, I'm never coming back here again. And it's precisely because of that. And and we get the the hotel personified. I mean, frankly, to be honest, the, the hotel as a monster, you know, quote unquote, 
only gets personified in a couple different ways. It gets personified at the end when it is um, really possessing Jack, okay. you know, and that's kind of the end of the novel. And when it's talking to Halloran, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, Danny repeatedly tries to call for Halloran uh, psychically across the United States and it works a couple times. But then eventually, as Danny is trying to call, the hotel steps in and, you know, it's it's cursing at Danny or whatever. And then when Halloran gets close, it's like screaming uh, racial epithets at him like it has mm-hmm. power um, and it has a perspective on the world. And the perspective on the world is almost entirely self-preservation and then racism. Mm-hmm. Like that that's what we know about the hotel. And so so that that is not to add to anything you just said, but just to say that like I think clearly King is trying to think these problems, but but it is a I think like you said, right, like the charitable read is King's trying to think these problems and then kind of resolve them through the character of Halloran or or show the problem through the character of Halloran. But the problem that comes with that is that uh King just doesn't have the perspective necessary in order to really make that work. And so, you know, it's very much, I think, a white, like capital L liberal problem in that he knows that there is an issue and he's trying to address it, but he does not have the tools at hand in order to actually do so. And so you you end up with these these kinds of characters. And we're going to see that literally for the next 50 years, the, like the most recent King work still has this problem in it. Um, I think I think it is probably the, the biggest flaw if we if we can say that there are flaws in Stephen King's work across the board. His handling of race is perhaps the central flaw. Mm-hmm. But yeah, other what about other stuff that's happening in the middle of this novel? Um, wh- what do you think about the hedge animals? I hate the hedge animals. <laughs> so a little bit of history on this novel. <laughs> Stephen King uh, starts trying to write this this book, um, and it is originally called Darkshine. Yeah. yeah so actually let's let's tell another story while we're talking about race let's tell another story uh-huh. um the original title for this version of this novel was called the shine okay sure yeah stephen king had to be told by his editor that that is a racial slur against black people uh-huh so it becomes the shining mm-hmm. uh-huh got it uh-huh okay so I am mm-hmm. like I'm I'm saying these things because these are these are the titles that were given. The original title for the original idea for this book was called Darkshine and it was about uh some people trapped in a uh, an evil amusement park <laughs> that ran off of the 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 psychic energy of a little boy, right? I mean, okay, I get it. Yeah, and it was inspired uh King says this explicitly in in some interviewer or piece or other. It was explicitly inspired by the Ray Bradbury short story The Belt. Are you familiar with this? Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the Velt, if you if you don't know it, is a Bradbury short story about um, these two parents who have children um, who spend a lot of time in their nursery. And it's a science fiction story. It's the future. And the nursery is uh, because it's like a 1950s, 1940s science fiction story. Right. It's the, the nursery is like basically a holodeck from Star Trek. Mm hmm. And the kids can like play all sorts of like sort of environments and games and so on in it. But the thing that the kids are doing all the time and it's weirding the parents out is they just go to the veldt, right? An African veldt, which is like a kind of um, stretch of grass where like lions hunt. And the kids are just hanging out in the veldt all the time. And there are always these lions in the distance. And this is really wigging the parents out. And like spoilers for the veldt, um, by the end of the story, the children have used the nursery to kill their parents, right? They used the, the, the lions to eat them. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, so so King has he, he he takes the this idea, he tries to make this amusement park novel out of it. But the problem he is having with the amusement park novel uh, is that once the once the uh, scary stuff starts happening, he he can't figure out why the characters just don't leave. Yeah, I think this might be a uh, a, a Stephen King problem over the next <laughs> 60 years or so is that many of his plots. Uh, couldn't be resolved if people just left. <laughs> if the if you just left the place where you were in, yep, it went literally anywhere else. Uh, so the then as he is trying to work on his next book, The Shining, uh, the family goes to Colorado. The reason they do this is because he uh, has already written two books that are set in Maine, and he decides he wants to try to write a different location. So they, uh, according to the story he tells, right, randomly point at a place on a map, and it's Colorado. So they move out to Boulder, Boulder Colorado for, for a couple of years. And they stay at the Stanley Hotel in Estes Park, which becomes the model for the Overlook. Uh, he has a nightmare of his son being chased down a hallway by a, a fire hose. And mm. when he wakes up, he's like, oh, right, this this novel that I've been working on is now set in this haunted hotel. And the reason they can't leave is because they get snowed in. So that's that is all that. The lions from the Velt get propagated forward through this entire thing into the hedge mm. animals that sit outside of the Overlook Hotel. Now, in the Kubrick movie, famously, this just becomes a hedge maze for uh, sort of technical reasons, because, you know, otherwise, I guess they would just be a bunch of puppets. Uh, well, so the, the hedge animals can be creepy. There's like three lions, the Velt, um, and there's also like a bison and a dog and a rabbit. And the way that they work is that as uh, you're, you know, when, when when the things in the Overlook decide to act, uh, they all have like their particular thing that they do. And what the hedge animals do is that they change positions when you're not looking and the lions start getting closer and closer and closer, which I think is good, right? When this gets stupid for me, when I, when I check out on the, on the hedge animals is when people are looking at them and the hedge animals are just walking around. Like it's just a bush. That's also a lion and it can kill you. Mm -hmm. That's not scary to you. You don't think that's scary? Like, I mean, sure, it would be scary. But when I sort of think about it, like when I visualize it, I, I just I'm like, oh, no, it's a it's a walking bush, which just it just raises a lot of questions for me. Right. Uh, the um, uh, <laughs> so I can remember the first time reading this book. Uh, and I re- I can remember I remember where I was. I was like in the backseat of of of, uh, of a car. When I read the uh, like Halloran shows up to the hotel and just gets you know <laughs> ambushed by <laughs> by uh, hedge animals, and I remember distinctly being like, "Oh fuck!" <laughs> <laughs> like they got him. Oh god. So so you know, I it's hard for me to forget that memory in the sense of like that di- it did work <laughs> right on you know whatever twelve probably like eleven twelve thirteen year old me somewhere in there. Um, and so, you know, I, I got a little bit of sympathy for it in that way because, it, you know, at least of it, of its horror slash thriller novel function, it did mm-hmm. work on me uh, when I was a kid. But reading it now, yeah, it's just like you could cut all that. And I think Kubrick also re- re- recognizes this, right? It doesn't really have anything to do with with the plot, especially like I could imagine. Oh, they try to leave. The hedge animals prevent them from leaving. Mm hmm. That makes sense to me. But they can't leave because the snowstorm is, like, massive. And also, Jack destroys the snowmobile that they would leave in. Mm-hmm. 
So it's like not even if you, you know, from from a pure plot mechanics perspective, you still don't need the the um, uh, the hedge animals. So, I, yeah, I, I feel like they could have been edited out and we would be perfectly fine um, and the, the whole thing would work. But, um, you know, I don't know. I still got a soft spot for him. I got a soft spot for, for Dick Halloran lighting his own arm on fire and then punching one to death. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, it is, <laughs> it is like that's how he takes it out. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, uh, but, but, but yeah, absolutely. Um, we haven't talked about Wendy. No, I have, Wendy's an interesting character because on the one hand, I feel like she's got a bit more oomph behind her than, uh, our previous, well, I mean, with, I think like the exception of Carrie, right? Carrie herself, Mm -hmm. um, and maybe Sue Snell. She's got a little bit more oomph behind her than like Susan Norton from Salem's Lot, especially. Uh, but she also has her own family stuff going on. And once again, it's problems with her mom. Yeah. Uh, this is how Stephen King like structures every relationship between women. Um, and maybe this is just a thing across the board, because, of course, Jack's relationship is with his father, <laughs> too. Right. So, you know, maybe, you know, maybe there's just some purposeful parallel there. But yeah, 100 percent. It's it's women and their mothers is like the thing that that is the primary friction for women. Mm hmm. Um, and their relationship to men, I guess, too, right. right? Um, I mean, I have a lot of, of empathy for, for Wendy, mm-hmm. um, and maybe this too, you know, I was talking about the, the being polluted from Dr. Sleep. I actually don't think Dr. Sleep does very much for me for Wendy, but, but the Stephen King or the, the Kubrick film, um, The Shining, hard to get that version of Wendy out of my head, right? And, and, um, you know, she's such a, a the the things that are done to Wendy mm-hmm. that she can't do anything about, um, just, you know, it's just really empathy and sympathy inducing mm-hmm. for me, right? Like she is trying as hard as she can to navigate the position that she is in, and she does not have a lot of leeway. She doesn't have a lot of room, right? And uh, she can't really do much about it. And I just, you know, uh, the the way what she does decide to do has so much more power, I think, for that. But also, I, I say all that within the structure of like it sucks that you know that she is a, a daughter and a wife whose only position within these novels is to be abused mm-hmm. right within mm-hmm. this novel right so you know i i have to recognize both sides of that but but i would be lying if i said it didn't work here you know i think that as a character and the function that she provides in the novel i think that 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 really does kind of work mm-hmm. for me i mean obviously when i was reading it when i was younger i think i probably like i empathized with danny more right danny was like my subject identification mm-hmm. because he was the little boy he was the son and um and this time i find myself you know identifying a lot more with wendy because she is uh like she is a person in this situation who acts basically like i probably would which is like, mm-hmm. oh, there probably cannot be ghosts. There cannot be ghosts. That's absurd. And then finally, when there are ghosts, it's like, okay, so I'm in a haunted hotel. It wants to kill me and my child and I guess my husband. And also my husband is the part of the hotel and wants to kill me. What can I do about this? Yeah. Uh, and, and she really has to think through, uh, you know, her plans. And she makes plans and she tries to execute them. Uh, it just happens that, you know, she's thwarted at almost every turn. Yeah, and maybe maybe that is partially too why why you know I have such a uh, an emotional connection I think with Wendy is that she really is she is just like she has all the same information that we do and she exactly like you're saying is trying to plan and and so in that way right like 
she's one of the very few characters that moves in the novel. I wouldn't say that Danny moves very much, right? He doesn't really learn that much more about himself. He doesn't learn that much more about the hotel. Um, he's just trying to survive, and, and, and it's really minute to minute for him. Same with Jack, right? He, he is falling down a hole. Um, but I wouldn't say that he has very much character progression. But Wendy goes through a lot of stages in this thing of, of, of having to make choices between, like, do I try to leave and maybe die outside, or do I definitely mm-hmm. die here? And, you know, what can I do for, for my son? And so I, I think you're right. I think it's that kind of planning um, that, that makes her really work as a character. Uh, let, let's kind of go... So we've talked about the plot of the novel. Plot of the novel, as you said at the beginning... Pretty, pretty pretty simple, right? They're in the hotel and things get worse and they go from there. Um, but but I think it might be good here. Uh, you know, and this is going to be a long episode, I think, just just the, the truth of the matter. Um, let's talk about scary moments in the book. Can we do that? Okay. Because I think, because we want to talk about the dog man, mm-hmm. but but we, we're not going to dedicate a huge amount of time to just the dog man. Let's talk about scary stuff. I'll go first. Wasps. So, okay, when we say scary stuff, do we mean things that we find scary that are in the novel or the things that the novel is telling us yeah. are scary? Uh, well, I mean, you, well, we can talk about some things the novel's telling us are scary that, that mm-hmm. are not scary. <laughs> we could do that, too. But but I, let's be inclusive of both. Um, okay, so wasps. Wasps. Uh, you, you know, the kind of formative scary thing that happens in the, in the novel is that... Uh, uh, he's up on the roof. Jack's up on the roof, and he's fixing some shingles. And he finds a wasp. He finds a wasp's nest. And he, I also apparently can't say that wasps, wasps nest. Can't say that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and he finds it. And he like uses a bug bomb on it to to get rid of all the wasps in it. And he puts it in Danny's room. And then all the wasps come back, and they're stinging Danny. And to me, that is scary because I don't like being stung by stuff. I grew up my whole. I grew up in a rural area. I got stung by perhaps every insect on the planet. <laughs> I got stung by a hornet on my face one time, yes. and it swelled up to like five times the size of my normal face, which is already big. So, uh, uh, you know, did not care for that. I think that's scary. Wasps coming back to life. That that is very scary. Uh, my response to the wasp thing is, I understand why it's scary. I also don't like being stung. But this is when I said at the beginning of the episode, one of the reasons that I maybe cooled on this novel a little bit this time is because everything is very obvious. Mm-hmm. Uh, the wasps is one of the things that is very obvious to me because the the wasp nest where Jack kills all the wasps, then brings it back in, and then suddenly the wasps are alive again. Be- it becomes a, a recurring metaphor and image that describes the overlook itself. Mm-hmm. as a a wasp nest that is at one point empty and then suddenly populated right and very dangerous and filled with kind mm-hmm. of this um simmering uh angry anti-human intelligence yeah it, it is such a commanding metaphor that it, it even shows up at the end like halloran mm-hmm. thinks that unrelated to any of the other actions. exactly um which is fine right that is a fine image but it also feels very belabored and obvious yeah it is absolutely uh I, I'm just putting this in here, too, because we were talking about it before. Very interesting that this metaphor of the wasp nest is exactly the same metaphor that gets used in Neuro- Neuromancer just a few mm-hmm. years later. About the haunted mm-hmm. hotel in Neuromancer. That, 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 I mean, yeah. <laughs> the haunted space station in Neuromancer. Hmm. Uh, yeah. anyway, but what did you find scary, Michael? What, give, give, us, give us a scary thing. The, some of the stuff that Jack digs out of the basement is very scary to me, right? Mm-hmm. He finds, like, mm-hmm. uh, among all of these papers, right, he finds, like, a note that a guest was writing in their in their room, and it's half-finished. 
And it's you don't get the sense that like and then something snuck up behind them and grabbed them, although that might have been what happened. Right. Because they don't. The note is just like, oh, I'm sorry, I haven't written to you. I've been very distracted. And then like the note just stops in the middle of the sentence. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is this is very interesting to me because I know where King is getting this. He also finds like a uh, uh, Jack also finds a uh, a teddy bear that's been dismembered in this pile of Mm -hmm. junk, which is, you know, there's nothing clearly like wrong about it right teddy bears can get ripped to pieces but the thing that it implies is what's frightening uh and king is pulling this type of thing from uh, a novel called burnt offerings um by robert morosco uh, which actually gets made into a, a movie in 1976 but that's a haunted house novel uh where a family moves into a, a big old mansion uh on long island over the summer Um, And they are the caretakers, right? It's owned by these wealthy siblings. And they're like, during the summer, you'll be the caretakers, uh, you know, this, that, and the other. Mm -hmm. But like how Burnt Offerings works is like, you never see a ghost, but like the father is uh, trying to clean the pool and he sees something in the bottom and he pulls it out and it's a pair of glasses. And one of the lenses is cracked. It doesn't like the glasses don't belong to anyone in the family, but there's just a pair of broken glasses at the bottom of the pool. And then like the son finds um, a rusted tricycle overgrown by vines in the garden. So all of this almost like Bioshock uh, immersive sim style, like here is an object that implies a story. And this happens a couple of times uh, in the basement, um, but also uh, at one point, like when when the Overlook's elevator starts running on its own and like Wendy crawls in and she finds a whole bunch of glitter and like a party mask. Right. She like throws out the streamers mm-hmm. and is like, what is that, Jack? Because at this point he's denying that there's anything wrong in the hotel and Wendy knows that it is. Yeah. That's the second scariest thing in the novel to me. That it legitimately is like goosebumps generating mm-hmm. horror. Right. And that's what I love about that is like the way that the like just you just take an object and it becomes malevolent. What was another thing? Um what about that dog man? Yeah, let's talk about the dog man. Uh, so I, as you remember um, what you were doing when uh, Halloran, uh, you know, got ambushed by the hedge hedge animals, I also remember where I was when I first read about the dog man. I was alone in my grandparents' house um, because my family, oh, no. yeah, my, my um, I had gone there with my mom and my sister, I think, and then they were going to go shopping or something. And I was like, oh, I'm reading this novel and I'm kind of into it. So I'm just going to stay here. Um, And so everyone is out and I'm sitting in my grandparents' house alone and I am reading the, the back, basically third of this book. And how this works in the novel is Danny is alone uh, like the, the the hotel has gotten to Jack. Jack is downstairs. Um, Danny and Wendy are locked in their quarters upstairs. Wendy falls asleep, and Danny, because he he know he he's tried calling in Halloran, but he doesn't know if he's getting through, and he knows he needs to do something in order to um like he feels like he needs to do something in order to, to, to you know combat the hotel, uh, and so he's going to go like downstairs or something. He walks down the hall and he turns a corner. And there's just a man in a dog costume on his hands and knees, like scurrying around in the hallway, like saying nonsense and like pretending to bark and stuff. And then when he um, sees Danny, like Danny realizes the guy has like blood on his mouth and the guy uh, threatens to eat Danny. And he actually uh, threatens to like uh, 
sort of sexually assault him mm-hmm. and then also eat him. Uh, and it's, as I said uh, earlier, right, it's just like this absurd nightmarish idea of turning a corner in a in a massive empty hotel and there's a man in a dog costume yelling at you and, and threatening you. And of course, like Kubrick uh, takes this image uh, and does something else with it that I think becomes, um, you know, it, it, its own kind of iconic. But reading that book, I remember sitting on my uh, grandparents' uh, couch and just being like, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. <laughs> and like being afraid of what I would see when I turned the corner when I was walking to the kitchen next time, right? Yeah, I mean, it's scary. It, 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 I think it, the way that you're phrasing it, right, the absurdity of it is partially why it's so scary. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I Reading it again, uh, you know, yesterday, reading it and thinking about the, the relationship to the Kubrick, right? Like, obviously the Kubrick portion is scary also because it's absurd i guess but it's scary because it's austere too right like you know the the shot i can see it in my head right it's the shot that's framed through the doorway <laughs> and a person leans into the frame you know a head or you know a torso leans into the frame and then the dog man comes up mm-hmm. right and and then you're trying to figure out what the fuck is happening and then it's also very clear what is happening mm-hmm um, you know, and it's scary because of the austerity, right? Because of like how bizarre this thing is in this very static framework. What's scary about this is how frenetic it is <laughs> in, in a fairly static framework, right? Like it is the the pure interruption of the real <laughs> <laughs> of of this uh, of this uh, hotel into an already disordered universe, but like a, a super disordered <laughs> universe. What do you think about the first introduction of Lloyd? That is so good. It, it's it's very scary. So Lloyd, if and if people have seen the film, right? Lloyd uh, is the bartender that that he begins having that Jack begins having conversations with, but Lloyd shows up in this novel as the bartender, but he does not have any dialogue. Mm-hmm. The first time mm-hmm. he shows up, he is just Jack will talk to him, and and the narration. Actually, I'll I'll uh, read a little bit of it because it's so disturbing. So. So it's like, uh, hi, Lloyd, he said, so Jack said. A little slow tonight, isn't it? Lloyd said it was. Lloyd asked him what it would be. Now I'm really glad you asked me that, Jack said. Really glad, because I happen to have two 20s and two 10s in my wallet, and I was afraid they'd be sitting right there until sometime next April. There isn't a 7-Eleven around here, would you believe it? And I thought they had 7-Elevens on the fucking moon. Lloyd sympathized. And, like, it's multiple pages <laughs> of this, right, of, of him monologuing this kind of, like, the bartender rapport right of his side of it and then the patter and then the other side of it just being this like weird absence that is lloyd and eventually lloyd gets filled in as like a character who has dialogue later and that's symbolizing or it's demonstrating that jack is even further into the hotel you know he's in the party quote unquote but uh oh gosh it it just it it is scary to me what's what's brilliant about that and this is actually a very shirley jackson thing right this is very haunting of hill house not necessarily in an obvious way but because of how haunting of hill house works uh in that bit uh where he's talking to lloyd for the first time the way the way that we interpret the way that we understand like narratological like perspective in prose it is unclear if that is like Lloyd said, it wouldn't be a problem. Lloyd did this or that because Jack is kind of playing this game, right? Kind of doing his own little patter. It is not clear if those things are just sort of Jack, like the, the narrative is assuming Jack's voice and like hit like his own half mm-hmm. of kind of that little game. Or if there is something from the overlook seeping in 
uh, and it becomes very hard to tell where Jack is stopping and the overlook begins. And then, of course, as you say, like Lloyd becomes a character with dialogue once the once the overlook is is really going whole hog. Uh, but that's one of the things that's really and I think this is one of the things that King was trying to get at in that intro about um, hoping that Jack would be more three dimensional uh, is that the, the the thing that is so scary about uh, Haunting of Hill House, in, in my opinion, is that that is a book where there is clearly like there there's a ghost or something in that house but it is absolutely unclear where like the the ghost stops and the people in the house begin right their psychology like runs full force into uh the manifestations of the supernatural in a way where uh they become kind of codependent uh and that's exactly what is happening to jack here yeah absolutely so i noticed i noticed something interesting here michael mm-hmm. We have both chosen the same uh, kingism. You know, in every episode, we talk about our favorite kingism in the book. I, I plotted mine out, and I went to look at the notes that you you put together, and we had chosen the, the same one, and it's scary. Mm-hmm. It's extremely scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want to talk about it a little bit? This is a line, and I knew this was going to be my favorite kingism uh, for this episode before we even started reading it. During the bit when uh, Jack is digging through the the papers in the Overlook's basement, um, one of the things uh, he finds, and I'm just going to read this, he found a hand puppet that seemed to be either a witch or a warlock, something with long teeth and a pointy hat at any rate. It had been improbably tucked between a bundle of natural gas receipts and a bundle of receipts for Vichy water in something that seemed to be a poem scribbled on the back of a menu in dark pencil. Quote, Medoc, are you here? I've been sleepwalking again, my dear. The plants are moving under the rug. And that's it, right? That's the end of the poem. No date on the menu and no name on the poem if it was a poem. Elusive, but fascinating. If it was a poem is, that's, you know, Stephen King, you know, we give him a lot of shit sometimes. That's masterful, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Like the economy of that, but but oh yeah, no no, it's you're right. It, it is the economy of it. Like it's it is. Um, so the reason I chose this for my kingism, the reason I knew that this would be my kingism, is that this has been in my head since I read this book. Like it has never left uh, because. Uh, so Stephen King does this thing, uh, another King thing, uh, and he does it a lot in this book. I think more so than he has in the previous two. So what TV Tropes calls these uh, are arc words, right? A kind of phrase uh, or something like that that gets repeated throughout the duration of a TV show, right? And takes on more and more significance uh, the more it is repeated. Um, I would like to lodge my discontent with with this this concept yeah, of the arc I, word. I just I need, I would like to flag that I do. Not I do not like it. it either. I'm bringing it in only because it's it's a a, a way for I think people might Mm -hmm. listeners might understand you know sort of what i'm trying to get at here because what makes king's use of this type of thing so different from what they do with arc words is that it's usually like nonsense right it's like weird little phrases Mm -hmm. or like uh you know one that's going to show up a lot lot later is just someone asking the question sounds hawaiian don't it 
like that's just going to like there's going to be some books later where that just gets repeated like multiple times in like a character's interior monologue because that's what happens right is characters encounter a phrase and then it starts echoing in their head and it starts taking on um all of these like weird connotations and it starts like diverging so we get another version of this later i think it's possibly danny who hears this um which is like he like things are filtering filtering into him psychically and maybe it's jack who thinks it but it's like medoc are you here uh it's the inhuman monsters that i fear and mm -hmm. like the, the 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 phrase starts like mutating and changing but it's always this kind of recurring weird ominous sing song and it just it does like that thing so well yeah it has this kind of feeling of of uh it's happening again Right. Which which I think is the if there's like a root to the horror of this novel for me. Right. And the thing that really works on me or resonates with me is that time is broken in the Overlook. Right. When the Overlook is charged up and doing its thing and, and presumably, you know, um, as we're told several times, the reason that the Overlook is so active at the, when we're reading the novel is because it's feeding off of Danny. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's it's absorbing some of that psychic energy or it's, or it's you know, something. Something about him is charging it up. Um, and so this is just this kind of like um, an artifact, right? That 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 is demonstrating that what it, what has happened before or what is happening now has happened before mm -hmm. here, right? So it has the same kind of function as Grady mm -hmm. as well, right? Is like we know that what is happening to Jack is not unique, and it's part of the tragedy of the thing too, right? Which is that as we get toward the end of the novel, we realize, and it's when Jack's at the party and he and he's kind of interacting with these characters um, who we have seen as like you know, monsters basically, or we will see. So he sees the dog man. He sees Derwent. He sees the woman in, uh, uh, in what? Two, three, seven. I don't know why I can't think of the thing. Uh, two, 217, two, three, two, seventeen. Is the Kubrick movie. Ah, uh, there we go. Um, and so in two seventeen, right. He's seen her, but, um, in her, uh, you know, not a zombie form or mm -hmm. not a ghost form or a different type of ghost, I guess. But but he's seeing all of this, but he's also talking to these other figures and you get the sense that Jack believes he's been promised or not. You get the sense Jack is being promised the uh, that he is the caretaker and that he'll be the caretaker and that he's so good at being the caretaker that he might one day get to be the manager. Mm -hmm. Right. It's this kind of like maneuver movement or upward mobility like you talked about before it's the thing that's being denied him in his day-to-day -day life that the overlook is offering him and tempting him with but but this this poem it, or whatever it is it's it's scary by itself i think just the, there's something about the the phrasing of it it has this dreamlike quality to it but it's also like i've been sleepwalking again mm -hmm. and that happens to jack mm -hmm. Right. He's he sleepwalks. He has these weird memories. The plants are moving under the rug. Like you said, that's the pattern that's on, on the ground. And so there, the, it is our first recognition or our first kind of hint that what that this is not the first time something like this has happened. And it is all predicated on violence and lies in order to bring more things into the overlook. And that's actually what I find so disturbing about the the whole end of the novel is that what we're finding out is that the horror of the overlook isn't just that it like consumes people and causes murder and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's scary and bad or whatever, but the horror of the thing is that it's eating everything inside of it into this timeless eternal space mm -hmm. um, that is just the mind of the overlook. 
this party and the unmasking and like the you know the trauma of the dog man and the murder of the um of the the gangsters and the woman dying in the bathtub all those things are happening and presumably grady killing his family Mm -hmm. all those things happened at one point but they are happening eternally in this kind of limbo space of the thing and that's just like straight up horror right i mean it's hell you know i i think it's you know this kind of manichaean version of like the worst shit that could happen happening all the time um and so this is our first kind of like entree into that and i i think it's you know i think maybe this phrase you know for you obviously it it kind of functions this way but i think it might be a key to the novel to kind of understanding what the stakes of the novel really are danny's gonna be there forever if danny dies here wendy will be Mm -hmm. there forever underneath jack's thumb Mm -hmm. forever if 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 you know the overlook wins and that i think it sells the book i mean you know that it provides the limit case for like what the imagination Mm -hmm. is here i'm i'm glad that we we chose the same one i was wondering if that would ever happen and then it did yeah i like marked it with a big uh because i read this mostly in bed and so i was just folding down page numbers or folding down pages and so i like folded that one all the way in (laughs) half um and then i like saw the notes you sent i'm like well easy (laughs) to do that one uh so uh, then, what what do you think of uh, Uncle Stevie's mixtape? What what there's a there's more songs in this book than I think there were in the previous two. He really goes all out. Uncle Uncle Stevie's mixtape. Um, yeah, well, I don't know. You you got the first one here. You got Eddie Cochran, Twenty Flight Rock. Yeah, so this is a song that like Danny sings to himself while he's playing on the porch of the Overlook. It's like a kind of rockabilly song. It is it is less than two minutes long. It is kind of like the suggestion of a song, in my my opinion, than than actually a song. I don't know. Like it's just okay, whatever. It's it's about like uh the the, the singer's like girlfriend lives on the twentieth floor and he has to walk up twenty flights of stairs and it's very tiring. Hmm. Yeah. Well he's rocking, right? So but it sounds like appropriate little kid music. Yeah, yeah. I think it's two stars just because it's like whatever, but sure, Danny would love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got, uh, and we're not going to talk about all the songs that showed up in this, in this thing, uh, in the book, because you're right, a whole bunch of songs did, but, uh, Al Green, uh, Call Me shows up. Um, this is just an Al Green song, just straight up. Sounds like most Al Mm -hmm. Green music. If you like Al Green, Mm -hmm. it's very good. It's very smooth. Great. Three stars. Uh, I listened also to The Stripper, which is an instrumental piece by David Rose. It's from uh, the 40s or 50s. It's played, uh, it's it's mentioned as like echoing through the halls of the Overlook or something. It was, I had, I had to look this up because it was composed uh, to sort of like be a song for a striptease. Um, it's kind of, it's got kind of a burlesque atmosphere to it. Uh, at the same time, uh, I feel like there is no greater index of how much the expectations for like sonic eroticism have changed in the past 70 years, because this sounds like music that a cartoon clown would dance to one summer. <laughs> is it like, it's, it's not even like, it's not even that kind of, cause there's like a deepness to that, right? Almost a kind of, um, brassy abrasiveness. Uh-huh. And this song is very brassy, mm-hmm. but it's like, it's like it's a much higher kind of like tone um and it just feels like it it Mm. it sounds like something that would play at the end of a looney tunes cartoon you got i didn't listen this is you too this is a duke ellington track mood indigo what do you think about that i like duke ellington and this is this is a duke ellington classic 
Uh, it is also just a general jazz standard. And there is a reason for that. It's like the precise sort of thing uh, when you think of like jazz that you're listening to, you, you, you put on the record player, you have the windows open. It's kind of a drizzly summer night. And uh, you listen to the sounds through the window while you, you know, have a have a cocktail or like put a little bit of bourbon in your coffee or something and, and listen to some jazz and maybe smoke a cigarette or something. It is it is that kind of jazz music and it is just so good at being that like i love it five stars wow five stars mm-hmm. uh there's a glenn miller song there are two glenn miller songs uh in the mood and tuxedo junction we did not listen to these uh this is for you uh things our our dear listeners it should probably be dear mm-hmm. listeners dear right? listeners yeah uh but but we'll go back and forth this is for you you should tweet at us at range touch and let us know your star rating for Glenn Miller's In the Mood or uh, Glenn Miller's Tuxedo Junction. But I listen to Hank Williams Sr.'s Your Cheatin' Heart. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just classic country music. It's I, I don't care for it. Two stars. All right. Not good. But let me tell you what I did like, Michael. Mm-hmm. This this gets its own like lyrics quotation section. And as we get further into Stephen King, we're going to get more just like epigrams we're gonna get uh just in the middle of text happening just stephen king writing out the lyrics to songs he likes right Mm -hmm. like the more money that this man makes the more he is willing to license Mm -hmm. lyrics absolutely (laughs) and this is credence clearwater revivals bad moon rising the song is an absolute ripper Mm -hmm. of a dad rock track there's perhaps no more stephen king song Mm -hmm. than bad moon rising it it absolutely whips ass five stars. Agreed. Agreed. Good, good judgment there. Um, there's apparently, I also caught this uh, during the the uh, uh, scene or, or the uh, uh, party that, that ends with an unmasking, right? So, so the big kind of like ephemeral phantasmal party. Uh, someone is playing a swing version of Ticket to Ride. Mm-hmm. Which is a very Stephen which, King, which like, is, I'm going to take a Beatles song and have someone play it. Well, well, that's interesting too, right? Because the Ticket to Ride didn't exist when the party happened. No, right? and that's part of the the idea that all times are one in the Overlook, right? This is this is the oh, that's this right. is the most sort of suggestion I think we get of how these times really can overlap. Mm. Um, we've got a couple other segments here that we gotta gotta do here. Uh, what in the Kingiverse? Mm-hmm. So some connections from this novel to the other ones. The obvious one I think is Doctor Sleep. Mm-hmm. You know that it's a direct sequel. We will talk about that in approximately five years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, but but you said you had some other ones. I didn't notice any, but that's just because uh, I think I'm not as good at this. Uh, what, what, did, what did you notice, Michael? So the Overlook gets mentioned uh, in Misery later on, which we'll talk about in maybe four mm-hmm. years. Uh, so it shows up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sidewinder, Colorado, which is the, the small town that is closest to the Overlook, becomes a, in the same way last time I talked about like the King locations like Jerusalem's Lot and Castle Rock and Derry, uh, Sidewinder becomes that for Colorado. Uh, whenever a King character passes through Colorado, they mention Sidewinder and uh, sometimes like the ruins of the old hotel nearby get brought up. Yeah, for whatever reason, there's like a short story that takes place inside Wonder, I think, now that I'm thinking about it. That is probably true, although weirdly uh, enough, it's not one that I'm conjuring from my, my memory immediately. Yeah, I can't think of it either, but anyway, well, we'll mm-hmm. find out. We're going to read reading some short stories pretty soon. There's a new little uh, segment that you've pitched here, Michael. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called King Shakespeare. 
because Stephen King can't help himself, basically. Yes. He just he's got to talk about Shakespeare. Uh huh. He has to. He loves it. He loves Shakespeare. He does. I think he does. I mean, to, to be true, I think he really does love Shakespeare. I think this is going to be a common thing. I think he's going to talk about Shakespeare quite a bit over the next uh, forty years or so. But uh, yeah, you you know, you said, hey, maybe I should talk about all the different references to Shakespeare. I think I've already talked about the fact that uh, the Overlook uh, time is out of joint, Michael. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the famous quotes from from uh, Hamlet that time is out of joint has a lot of bearing on the overlook. But kind of just to run up the past couple of books, King has a uh, what I he he has an English teacher's kind of uh, knowledge, and he knows when to invoke these allusions and where they're thematically appropriate. So Carrie uh, is compared to at one point in the novel uh, Lady Macbeth as she's leaving prom, and um, she's you know, covered in blood and she's like wiping her hands on her skirt. Uh, And this calls to mind uh, Lady Macbeth in Macbeth who sleepwalks and is constantly reenacting the murder that she and her husband did of the king. And she has uh, a spot of blood uh, on her hands and she can't get it to to wash off in her dream. And so she says, you know, famously out spot, uh, out damn spot. And so uh, Carrie gets uh, compared to Lady Macbeth in that moment. Uh, Salem's Lot uh, very, very briefly has a mention of uh, someone demanding like their pound of flesh, which is a reference to the Merchant of Venice. Uh, Thematically gets really interesting because uh, obviously in in that play, which is deeply anti-Semitic, the character of Shylock, who is a Jew, wants to cut a pound of flesh uh, from the breast of a Christian man. Uh, And he ends up getting... Uh, haggled out of court, basically, because the uh, the lawyer, uh, or rather the, the, the person pretending to be a lawyer who is arguing against him, uh, says that the bond uh, mentions only the flesh and not the blood. So Shylock cannot take the, he has to, he can take the flesh, but he can't take the blood. And if he can't uh, do that, then the, the bond is forfeit. Uh, so that's how Shylock gets excluded from the world of the play, right? You know, the the, the play ends with the, the preservation of like white Christian Venetian society. Uh, and that's very interesting if you think about how that might resonate with the, the fears of insiders and outsiders that's going on in Salem's Lot and especially uh, the the potentially deeply anti-Semitic trope of of the the people from Europe or some other place coming here and destroying us from the inside out. This is the book, The Shining, that goes the hardest on the Shakespeare directly. So not only is the time out of joint in the Overlook, uh, there is a bit where King uh, explicitly is rewriting. Uh, he's imagining, I think, it's, I think it's like Danny imagining what would happen if he saw a ghost and sort of like how his hair would stand up mm-hmm. and how he would shiver and so on and so forth. And it is just a straight up rewriting of something the ghost in Hamlet says to Hamlet. The ghost says, you know, if I told you what the afterlife is like, your hair would stand up and you would shake and shiver and all of this stuff. Like it is it is just straight up like beat for beat uh, that speech rewritten. Uh, but then also there's a moment where Jack is running down the stairs uh, because the, the, the hotel uh, is coming to life and the elevator has started working and we're in Wendy's perspective, Jack gets to the bottom of the stairs and he's unsure of which direction to turn. And Wendy compares him to Hamlet because Hamlet sort of famously doesn't know what he should do. He's ambivalent about his situation because his uh, father's ghost has come back and said, hey, I was murdered and you need to do a murder to avenge me. And Hamlet has very complicated feelings on this. So Wendy sees Jack in a moment of kind of like confusion and ambivalence and 
thinks of him as Hamlet, which is very thematically appropriate, of course, because when the hotel really gets to work on Jack, the first time it does this is it starts speaking to him in his father's voice and telling him with his father's voice, you need to you need to make them take their medicine. You need to kill your family. So it's again that that Hamlet position of being confronted with a ghost and the ghost telling you that you need to do murder. Uh, except in this case, right, we we have kind of the whole haunted house genre that we're locking into rather than the revenge tragedy that is Hamlet. The you need to take your medicine line <laughs> is uh, also another scary thing. It's the thing that uh, Jack's father said. And we find out that Jack's mm-hmm. father was an orderly at a hospital. And you realize, or at least this is my interpretation of this, right? Because he's an orderly, he has to wrestle people down probably, right? His his job is to like move people around, uh, but then also be there in case like someone starts acting up. Like this is what he does every day is, and this is maybe what he's looking forward to is like forcing people to take their medicine. And it's just, it's very like, ugh. Yeah, yeah. One one gets a sense he's not very different at work than he is at home. Right. And, you know, there's that, that horrible kind of scene of uh, him beating his wife mm-hmm. with a cane um, that, that kind of comes up repeatedly, but which, again, is replicated in Jack attacking his family with a mallet, mm-hmm. um, which we didn't really talk about. Honestly, not that big of a thing in the novel. I mean, in the sense of it's graphic and, and disgusting and, and horrifying. Um, but, you know, it kind of becomes a slasher flick at the end. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he chases his whole family around and uh, tries mm-hmm. to kill them with a mallet. Not an axe like in the film. I think the mallet's scarier, personally. And I guess maybe to, to lean in the outro here, uh, the thing that I find so cool about the end that we didn't talk about at all. Well, maybe two things. So, so the first one is that Jack is trying to um, murder Danny and he's possessed by the hotel and he gets there and he's about to smash Danny in the head. And Danny says, you know, look, you're not my father. You know, my father's in there some way, somewhere, but you're not my father. And Jack is able to, uh, dismiss in, in this last kind of moment of grace, right? He gets rid of, of the hotel and he says, you know, look, Danny, you've got to run. Like, I love you, but you know, I'm going to murder you with this mallet, basically. And I can't do anything about it. And Danny kind of, of uh, you know, holds his ground. He's trying to, to work through it. And then uh, the Overlook takes control again of Jack. He's possessed, you know, it's possessed Jack. And it smashes his face apart, right, with the mallet. He turns it against himself and smashes his face apart. And so he is no longer Jack. He is just the Overlook. And and it, it becomes, I, my interpretation is he's, derwent at that point mm-hmm. um you know it's this kind of like you know i don't know some sort of uh, composite creature of derwent um and then uh you know truly jack is a race and i think that's like a really tragic kind of moment i mean for all the problems i have with jack as a character and how all the places where i think it just kind of doesn't work the way it's supposed to that scene works really well i mm-hmm. think but then there's another the novel, which we didn't really talk about at all, weirdly enough, which is that that boiler that we talked about an hour and a half ago, uh, he forgets to dump the boiler. Mm-hmm. The hotel forgets to dump the boiler to, to relieve pressure. And uh, he, he goes down. So he abandons trying to kill Danny. He goes down to the boiler and he tries to uh, to dump it right to keep it from mm-hmm. exploding. Um, and it blows up. Yes. What do you think about this scene? What do you think about the very end of this novel, Michael, in a general sense, as we, as we close up this episode? So I think that this is maybe one of the best plotted uh, 
uh, endings that King gets to in that, mm-hmm. you know, we, we in the sense that we set up the boiler at the beginning. Uh, we know that the boiler builds up and it needs to be dumped. And then the idea that when, when stuff really starts happening, when the hotel is really uh, going off the wall, uh, you, like the hotel, forget about the boiler. And I think it worked for me the first time. The first time I read this, I did, right? I totally forgot about the boiler. I forgot about it in the same way Jack did, the same way the hotel did. But then reading it this time, it's kind of, it's it's funny to me uh, because two things happen here. One is that it, it demonstrates what I talked about way back in the first episode, which is that King uh, will revisit this idea that evil will always destroy itself, right? Like evil evil mm-hmm. will misstep mm-hmm. in ways that will bring about its own destruction, which is what the, the hotel as an entity has done. Um, but then the, the second thing that is, like that was very funny uh, is that by this point, the hotel is like screaming like no 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 it mustn't it mustn't as it's like running down through the basement and it like is trying to dump the boiler and then once it's dumped the boiler it thinks that it's succeeded and then it's like yes yes and then the boiler explodes and it it feels very comic Mm -hmm. (laughs) like by this point right it's not jack anymore it's like this weird skitter it's it's a it's a proto pennywise in some ways right it's somewhere between pennywise and Gollum from the lord of the rings yes exactly it almost feels like two different approaches to this are being written at the same time. And I kind of wish that that King had chosen, but I think you're right. It's meant to be like unsettlingly, unsettlingly frenetic <laughs> or something like that. But the, uh, but you know, so like Halloran is there, right. And he's rescuing Wendy and, and Danny and, uh, uh, Jack, or the thing that was Jack, is taking the elevator, and Halloran, you know, specifically says he doesn't look through the window of the elevator in order to see, like, the chittering, you know, horror that's back there. And, mm-hmm. like, that to me is scary. That's like, oh, God, you know, there's something back there that's so horrifying that it's not worth even trying to look at it. Uh, but then on the other side, right, you you have that kind of thing where it's dumping the boiler and, and yelling, you know, like, I've won, I've won, and, mm-hmm. you know, blows up. So, um, you know. I, I agree. I think tonally it switches a little bit too much uh, into into what you know what Cyanide might call the zany, <laughs> um, and and in a it switches aesthetic modes uh, maybe too much. Um, last thing I want to ask you your opinion about Michael. What do you think about um, the thing that escapes the Overlook Hotel? If we go back to the <clears throat> the cut prologue before the play. The first thing that happens in the over, like during the ribbon cutting ceremony at the Overlook, uh, is a woman starts screaming. Right, the ribbon gets cut, and a woman in the crowd, because it's all sort of like the, the you know the nineteenth century like hoity toity people, she starts screaming and falls into a dead faint. And when she wakes up later, uh, they ask her like, "What happened?" And she said, "I looked because they're all outside the hotel." She's like, "I looked into the lobby and I saw something." it did not look like a man, right? It wasn't a person. So Hmm. at the moment, the Overlook Hotel gets its ribbon cut. There is something in the lobby that is not a person. Non-canonical, right? This this gets cut, but it's interesting to keep in mind because what happens at the end is uh, the Overlook Hotel is burning down. The, The big bank of windows on its western side where kind of its presidential suite is, those get blown out. And Halloran, I think, is looking up and he sees what is described as a large black manta, like escaping, like a cloud of black smoke in the shape of a manta ray escaping into the sky. And it's also called like, you know, a a swarm of of wasps, but Mm -hmm. specifically the image of just like this giant manta ray 
it is so strange and it is kind of kingy in the way that in the same way that the, the alternate ending of Carrie was her becoming um, a giant Godzilla figure, right? This thing that has been a very gothic kind of uh, traditional haunted house suddenly becomes like a big sea creature. Yeah, I think it literally ruins the ending of the book. I have that strong of a reaction to it because other, it, it, yeah, if you because if you remove that, right, you end up with this great thing, which is like. The, the hotel is burning down. You know, we get a sense that the, the thing is done. Halloran goes into the shed in order to get some blankets. So it's the shed that, that uh, Jack has been in previously a couple times in the book. Uh, it's where the snowmobile gets, gets ruined, right? He's back inside in somewhere that is owned by the hotel or is part of the presence of the hotel. He goes in there and the hotel is trying to get him to kill Wendy and Danny, right? So the hotel still has <laughs> presence. Um, and he he's able to stop it, right? There's even a, a, a roke mallet in there, and uh, he he almost grabs it, or no, he does grab it, um, and then throws it down. He's like, no, I'm not going to kill these people. And then he runs back outside. They get on the snowmobile, and they run away. And then later, there is a um, description of like a piece of wallpaper flying from the burning... Um, from the burning hotel and hitting the shed and eventually it begins to burn. Right. Hmm. Um, and so the implication there is like, as long as it's like attached to the ground or as long as there is a structure of the overlook remaining, it itself could be a thing. And when the main hotel burns down, the shed burns down too eventually. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that to me is so much more powerful, right? The idea of like even a structure being built on the ground in the proximity is cursed in some, some way. That's so much more powerful to me than there was an evil manta ray yeah. <laughs> that, that like jetted out of the thing. I, I think the novel would literally be like percentage points better if they deleted one <laughs> paragraph from it. Michael, what is your final estimation of this novel? I think it's still pretty good. I am not as hot on it as I once was. I think I find the 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 weirdness and the 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 attempted grasp of something like Salem's Lot more intriguing now in in my personal and creative life, uh, but I still think that this is it, the Overlook. Like again, I love haunted house stories. I think the Overlook Hotel itself is just a great uh, haunted house in fiction. Right? It is a it is a great example of mm -hmm. a particular way of approaching uh, uh, that particular trope. Same. I think it's a good book. I think, you know, I, I probably haven't cooled on it as much, but also I don't think that, that I was as high on it mm -hmm. as you were at, at one point, right? I don't think it's had as lasting an impact. I just think it's a solid novel. I think in, um, like I said, I think it is a, a, a true classic of American fiction. I think people should at least read the thing. Um, I And, and I think it, mm, it's right there with Salem's Lot for me <laughs> as far as like what we've read so far. I think there, I think, but, you know, just straight up, all three of the novels we read so so far, pretty good. I, you know, I'm not, I've not been disappointed, not been unhappy, not been uh, sad in any kind of way. These are good books. I'm glad that I have reread them. That said, Michael, what is the next book we're reading? So the next book we will be reading is the first Bachman book. Uh, that is to say, there is a series of books that Stephen King publishes under the pen name Richard Bachman, and we'll talk more about why that happens and what that sort of means in that episode, uh, but the next novel is the first Bachman book, Rage. And just to sort of warn you here up top, Rage is a novel about a school shooting, and King is so embarrassed by it that he has allowed it to go out of print. Yeah, 
So published under a pseudonym and no longer available in any kind of way. So it's actually kind of hard to get your hands on. If you have a copy of the Bachman books, which is kind of an omnibus of uh, several of the books published under the Bachman name, you can get that. You can find it on Abe Books if you're trying to read along. Um, I'm just going to preview and say, uh, if you're reading along, you can maybe skip this one. Mm-hmm. It's not going to hurt you in a way, but we are going to talk about it. We're, and like you said, Michael, we're going to talk about the kind of Bachman thing. And we're going to talk about why it went out of print um, or was allowed to go out of print. Um, Stephen King wrote an essay about it. We're going to talk about that essay, too. So you can see what we're up to at range touch. And you can go if you enjoyed this show. Even if you don't enjoy the show, you can still do this. But if you enjoy the show, you can go to patreon.com slash range touch in order to support the show. Every month we release uh, an episode of this, of course. In fact, this month, uh, you're getting this halfway through the month. We release two episodes because we're changing the release schedule slightly. Instead of being the first Monday of the month, this is going to come out kind of in the second week of the month. I think think we said the second Monday, but we're still trying to figure out exactly when. But it's going to come out mid-month instead of the beginning of the month because several other things that range touch does... Uh, or produces come out at the beginning of the month. So so we're trying to space out our releases a little bit. Um, but you can go to patreon.com slash range touch uh, in order to support us at $5 a month. So if you give us a, uh, you know, a Starbucks latte a month, uh, if you, you throw it in the old money pot, you'll get a bonus episode from us most months. Um, we might skip here or there. But uh, and and it's generally around Stephen King stuff. So for the Carrie novel, we did uh, the uh, a bonus episode on Carrie 2013, uh, the kind of most recent remake of Carrie. For last month's Salem's Lot, we did a uh, uh, episode on Return to Salem's Lot from 1987, uh, which is I, I keep revisiting it and I keep releasing on Twitter more <laughs> clips from this this movie. Uh, truly amazing. I, I, I am stronger. I'm more positive on it now than I was in the episode. And I was already pretty effusive in the episode. So, uh, definitely something worth listening to. Michael, what is our bonus episode for this month? We had, we have a choice. We have the Kubrick film, which everyone knows, or most people are know in some way, uh, which is very, very different from the book. And there could be a good conversation mm-hmm. had talking about that and what it means and why. Um, then there's also the, the, turkey of uh the shining mini series that stephen king uh you know wrote the screenplay for himself and i think produced because and this is in like the earlier mid 90s uh because he is so disappointed in kubrick's film version uh and it is universally understood to just be like hokey and cheesy i don't know which one we should watch well it looks like the shining mini series is very difficult to get a hand a handle on to find but apparently it is someone has uploaded a like VHS rip that they just recorded off of TV originally. They've they've uploaded that to the Internet Archive. It's six hours long. So we're doing it. Here we go. <laughs> uh, you'll get to right. you'll get to look forward to that uh, uh, sometime uh, later this month or early next month, I suppose. Yeah, I want to make sure that this is all. Yep. Here's Danny. Mm-hmm. It's got a bowl cut in this one. Uh, here's that doctor. God, we didn't even talk about the, the doctor they go to, but that's mm-hmm. okay. We'll be fine. Um, oh, gosh. This is going to be a real doozy of a thing. All right. Well, uh, so until next time, everyone, uh, unmask, unmask. 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 No, in my mind, they say unmask. <laughs> unmask. <laughs> Uh, all right well 
Well, we'll figure it out. We'll get there. Uh, catch you next time on Just Kidding Things. <laughs>